Amen. I'll invite you to turn your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 5 tonight. We're talking about the life of David. And I know I'm uh, uh, sometimes given to cover, try to cover a lot of ground. I think we did last week. Uh, we covered eight chapters talking about David's uh, rise to be king. Tonight I want to cover 12 verses. Now you may think that means I'll go slow. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not promising that. But anyway, the, we want to stick with uh, 2 Samuel chapter 5 tonight. Uh, talking about David and his coronation and, and uh, the first action that he takes as king. We'll start in verse 1, 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 1. Then came all the tribes of Israel to David unto Hebron. That Hebron was, uh, you may remember that David has already been uh, chosen and anointed to be king over Judah. The, um, the, uh, the southern, the, the, well, I say Judah, it's, uh, it's the band of, of people that he had. And um, uh, the, the southern kingdom of Judah has seen that um, uh, David is, is worthy and that he's God's man. And Saul's son is not when he was uh, installed as king in Saul's place. And uh, so anyway, David has, be- has already become king of Judah, uh, the, the small amount of the tribes of Israel. And he made his, uh, his headquarter city Hebron. So that's what he's talking about, came to Hebron. Uh, came to David unto Hebron and spoke, saying, Behold, we are thy bone and thy flesh. Now, these are the other tribes. Second Chronicles chapter 12, I believe it is, talks about the number of everybody that came and, and uh, they had a feast for three days and so forth. But Second Samuel chapter 5 just kind of gives us the high spots, hits the high spots. Also, in times past, when Saul was king over us, you were the one that led us out and brought us in, and brought in Israel. And the Lord said to thee, Thou shalt feed my people Israel, and thou shalt be captain over all of Israel. In other words, they're saying, We know that you were the one that was chosen. Now, this is, uh, this is instructive to us because um, David is operating here, especially once he becomes king and, and the final days of his becoming king. David is a, a real, real, real good type of Jesus. He's, uh, in this case, Jesus was the man despised and rejected of men that became the king of kings. David was rejected by the people. Now, most of that was due to Saul's pursuit of him and so forth. But you also have to realize that when Saul was pursuing David, there was all kinds of propaganda and stories and stuff like that that he was putting out and his counselors were putting out about David. And so the people had had turned against him too. They weren't pursuing him. They weren't the ones that, uh, um, uh, that hated him, so to speak, like Saul did. Saul was jealous and afraid that he'd take the kingdom away from his house, which he did. But, um, uh, but the people were, had rejected him based on the information, the misinformation that they had received about him. So when all of Israel and the different tribes of Israel come to David and say, we know that you're the guy, then things have changed completely. Now, just as Jesus was the king of kings, David was the greatest king of Israel. He was the one that was rejected of men. He was the one that was pursued and persecuted by the king and uh, operating on the people's behalf. And then he becomes the greatest king that Israel has ever known. So it says, All the elders of Israel came to the king of Hebron, verse 3, and with them in Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. And David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years. In Hebron he reigned over Judah seven years and six months, and in Jerusalem he reigned 30 and three years over all of Israel and Judah. Now if David is a type of Jesus in the, uh, in the, the manner in which he becomes king, the work that he had to do, and remember it was uh, uh, just as Jesus came to the earth and, and he was the anointed one, he was the Christ, he was born of God, born of the Spirit of God from the time, uh, well, in the virgin's womb, in Mary's womb, the Holy Spirit overshadowed her. So the life of God is in Jesus. 
when Jesus was about 30 years old, he was anointed of God by the Holy Ghost and began to do signs and wonders and miracles. But there was a time of great persecution. There were the, 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 the three-year ministry of Jesus is divided up into three separate years, and one of those years is the year of persecution. The last year is called the year of persecution. The first year is the year of popularity. Well, David is following that type in that he had to have uh, some great conquests, and most of those conquests were inner battles and battles of character, as we've talked some in weeks past about. So when David becomes the king of Israel as a type of Jesus, it would stand to reason that David, in his actions and his uh, uh, duties as king, would foreshadow Jesus' duties as the king of kings. And that's exactly what happens. Now, you need to realize it's easy for us to, to stop and talk about David's life, and most everybody thinks of David as the one that slayed, uh, slew Goliath. Uh, we think sometimes about uh, the pursuit of David by Saul and the persecution and so forth. But, uh, but David was anointed to be king when he was about 15 years old. So he's got about a 15-year time period of time where he has known what God's will was, but it hadn't come to pass. Sometimes things take longer than we want them to. Can you say amen to that? As a matter of fact, I think everything takes, takes longer than we want it to. And there are plenty of opportunities, just like David had, and just like you and I will have, to give up and to, to question, well, is this real? And, and David even does that himself. We've talked about some of that uh, and seen some of those examples as well. David began to, to question, is this ever going to happen? Is, am I, uh, one place he said, Saul's going to kill me out here. Well, he can't, Saul can't kill him if God's word is true. Because God said that he would be king of Israel. He's already anointed him to be king of Israel. But the, the doing and the bringing forth of those things is, uh, is sometimes different and sometimes a, lo- a tougher road, longer and tougher road than what we expect it to be when the word's spoken. It's easy to get excited about the word. It's easy to get excited when somebody prophesies to you or, or some feeling comes upon you or whatever when God speaks to your heart. But it's another thing to hold steady when everybody's working against you. Amen. Now, you've got to realize David didn't want the title of king. He wanted to be king. God's plan for him was not just to have the title of king, but God's plan, God, the reason God chose him was for what he would do once he became king. Everything else has just been preparation. David did four things uh, when he was king. The first thing is he took Zion. The second thing is he vanquished the Philistines, the arch enemy of Israel. The third thing is he brought the Ark of the Covenant back to the city of God. And then the fourth thing that David did was he concerned himself with the building of God's temple. Those four things are what made David the greatest king that Israel had. Now, as such, David is the type of Jesus. God chose him because he wanted him to conquer Israel's enemies and expand the kingdom. But I think that the type of Jesus holds true as well in that a lot of times we think that because Jesus is seated at the right hand of God and the work of redemption is finished, we get the idea that he's inactive. Well, yeah, but Pastor Mike, you've preached yourself that Jesus sat down because the work is finished. Well, what work? The work of redemption was finished, but not the work of building the church. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 25, Paul said, for he is speaking of Jesus, for he must reign till he has put all of his enemies under his feet. The Bible says the last enemy that will be put underfoot is death. So Jesus is actively active in his position as redeemer and king. He's seated at the right hand of God because there's no work left to be done to accomplish our redemption. But that doesn't mean there's nothing for him to do. 
Wouldn't that be a boring job for Jesus to come spend three years here on the earth, accomplish our redemption, and have to sit down for the rest of eternity? I think he got a raw deal. No, he is working in the earth. The preparation was completed, and that's why he sat down. But the real work of Jesus became after he was given all power in heaven and earth. How is he working now? He's working now through the church. He said in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, talking to Peter, he said, upon this rock, the knowledge that he was the Christ, I will build my church. That's what he's doing now. Now, I think the question we have to ask, well, let me finish the verse. I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Verse 19, and I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. In other words, he's saying the the work of building the church has to do with what you choose to bind and what you choose to lose. John chapter 14, verse 12 and 13. Jesus said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me, the works that I do shall he do also. And greater works than these shall he do because I go unto my father. Verse 13. And whatsoever you shall ask in my name, that will I do. So he's doing stuff. That will I do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Mark chapter 16, verse 20. After Jesus has commissioned the apostles and told them to go into all the world and preach the gospel. It says, and they went forth and preached everywhere. The Lord working with, King James says working with them, but literally the the word them is not there. The Lord working with and confirming the word with signs following. So Jesus has got plenty of work to do. The question is, are we giving him anything to do on our end? He's at work building the church. What are we doing? I think a lot of times we're sitting back wanting God to do his part and he's waiting on us to do ours. He has the work yet to do as the king of kings and lord of lords to honor his word, to keep his word on our behalf and to do exactly what he said, which is the same works that he did when he was here on the earth. Whatever you call for or require in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Finally, Romans chapter 5 and verse 17, it says, For if by one man, literally for since, by one man's offense, death reigned by one, much more they that receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one Jesus Christ. So the reality is Jesus is reigning on the earth just to the degree that the church is. That's why he said, all power is given unto me in heaven and earth. Then he commissioned the apostles. He said, you go therefore. In other words, you, you, you use the power on the earth, I'll use it in heaven. But it initiates on the earth. I think we've been guilty in many ways by talking about the grace of God, the finished work of God, finished work of Jesus to such a degree that we think that he's not doing anything. We think that he's inactive. We think he's just sitting around waiting on us. Well, he is waiting on us to take action, but so that he can work together with us. And so much of the church is praying, oh, Lord, move. Oh, Lord, move. And he's saying, you move and then I'll move. Just like I said, it'd work. Are you with me? Well, the same thing was true of David. And this is the type of David that's fulfilled in Jesus. David didn't just want to be king, meaning have the title. God had a plan for him once he was anointed, once he was crowned as king. It was the work that he did as king that that, uh, was the reason that God chose him to begin with. 
Now let's start in verse 6 again. Here's David's first action as king. And the king and his men went to Jerusalem under the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, which spake unto David, saying, Except thou take away the blind and the lame, thou shalt not come in hither, thinking David cannot come in hither. Now this is, the, the language here is really tough because the King James doesn't get across what's going on. Let me give you some background on this. First of all, the thing that the Bible tells us, and what I want you to see is David's first action as king of all of Israel was to move his headquarters from Hebron to Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem is spoken of several times in the Bible, and we assume that Jerusalem is Salem. As a matter of fact, Psalm 76, verse 2, let me read this to you. It says, In Salem also is his tabernacle and his dwelling place in Zion. So the Bible connects the first... uh, recorded information that we have on on this place called Salem is a connection with Zion. So that would have to mean to us that Salem is Jerusalem. Now, you may remember in Genesis chapter 14, after uh, Abraham goes out and conquers the the kings that had stolen his nephew Lot and and the people of Sodom and all the stuff and everything else, he defeated those people and, and Melchizedek, the king of Salem, met him coming back. And he blessed him. It says he was the priest of God. Melchizedek was the priest of God. What this means is he was the king of Jerusalem. Now, there may have been some outlying areas, but he was the city of Jerusalem was his his headquarters. And he was operating on behalf of God. So Jerusalem was once at our earliest mention, the earliest mention in the Bible, Jerusalem was in the hands of somebody that was a servant of God. Didn't stay that way. But his first mention in Genesis 14, Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek. Melchizedek blessed Abraham. Now, you know the Bible says, as well as I do, that the lesser cannot, or that the greater cannot be blessed of the lesser, which means in Abraham's eyes and in God's eyes, Melchizedek was a man that was greater than Abraham. Now, can I ask you a question? How do you get greater than the one that God makes a covenant with? God single-handedly picked Abraham. How do you get greater than that? I don't have an answer. It's a rhetorical question. It's easy for us to to surmise that that Melchizedek was a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus, which may be. But it says he was the king of Salem. And if the Bible is accurate and literal, meaning the king of Jerusalem, I'm not one to think that Jesus was living on the earth operating as a king of a city. You may disagree. Well, maybe it means it figurative. Maybe. We don't know. We know that the Bible says that he was without descent, without beginning, without end. That leads us to think that it was maybe Jesus. But honestly, folks, there's no way for us to know. When we get to heaven, we can ask him. But outside of that, there's no way for us to know definitively. But we do know that Jerusalem is mentioned as being in the hands of God, or at least in the hands of a servant of God, at its earliest mention. Now, we also know in Joshua's time, Joshua chapter 10, verses 1 through 3, that Jerusalem was one of the chief cities of southern Canaan. It was inhabited by the Canaanites. Now, the Jebusites were not a a separate people. The Jebusites were just a part of the Canaanite people. We also know that Joshua gave it to be a part of Benjamin's inheritance, Joshua chapter 18, verse 28. So they took the city, and I'll explain this a little bit more, but they took the city of Jerusalem as part of the conquest of the promised land. And then it became, by lot, Benjamin's inheritance. It was close to to the border between Judah and Benjamin's inheritance. 
in the days of the judges, after uh, Joshua has gone on to be with the Lord, in the days of the judges, it was recaptured by Judah. In other words, the city was taken over and possessed, operated by the Canaanites once again. They ran out the people of Benjamin. God commissioned Israel to retake some of the land that they had lost. He chose Judah, one of the 12 tribes, as the one that would do the the operation of the military work and and so forth. So they recaptured the city and gave it back to Benjamin as part of their inheritance. But Benjamin allowed the Jebusites to remain and live in the city. For this reason, David was unable to take back the city of Jerusalem until Benjamin submitted to him as king. That's why it's important for us to recognize the first part of the chapter, the first five verses where it talks about everybody else, all the other tribes of Israel came. Saul was of the tribe of Benjamin. So there's no way that David, operating as the king of Judah, could take somebody else's inheritance. He had to wait for the tribe of Benjamin to to be on board with making him king so that then he could go establish Jerusalem as the headquarter city, the chief city. Now, Jerusalem's made up in two parts. It's an upper city and a lower city. Let me explain what this means. The upper city was known as Zion, Mount Zion. Now, Zion has two peaks. One is Moriah. That was the the city or the the mountain that Abraham offered Isaac as a sacrifice, and the angel stopped him, and and, uh, that's where... um, God said, now I know that you would have not withheld your only son. It's God prophesying, I'll give my son, make my son available for a sacrifice because you were willing to do so with yours. That was Mount Moriah, which is also known as Mount Zion. Now, the, the second peak of Zion was an unnamed peak. It didn't have a name in itself, but it's where David wound up making his palace, which was called from that point forward, the city of David. Now, Mount Zion is a real tall mountain in Israel. It's one of the, the higher places. And the way that it's set up, the, the geography of the thing is set up so it's a natural fortress. The, the, the hillside and so forth, is, uh, it's nothing today because helicopters and airplanes and stuff like that, you can bomb things from the air and, and so forth. But in the days of old and in David's day, it was something that people would have to scale almost a sheer cliff to get up to. And as a result, it became a stronghold for anybody that had it. Now, for example, when I said in in the days of the judges, Judah recaptured the city, they didn't take Zion. Like I said, there's two parts of Jerusalem, the upper city and the lower city. The lower city is just Jerusalem. It's just a normal, pretty much a flat place. There's a little undulation to it, but not too much. And so what happened was Judah went in, set fire to the city, retook the, the lower city, but they couldn't uproot the Canaanites that held Zion. And as such, Benjamin had to make an agreement. They couldn't get rid of them. They couldn't starve them out. They couldn't burn them out. They couldn't defeat them militarily. So Benjamin, the tribe of Benjamin, had to agree to let the Jebusites keep what they couldn't get them out of, which was the fortress called Zion. The significance of this, folks, is that David did something nobody else could do, just like Jesus. He took the enemy's stronghold, just like Jesus. So David faced the fortress of his enemies, the Jebusites. And notice, let's read verse 6 again. The king and his men went to Jerusalem under the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, which spake unto David, saying, and here's the difficult part, 
Here's what the inhabitants of uh, the Jebusites said to, to David about taking their stronghold. They said, except you take away the blind and the lame, thou shalt not come in hither, thinking David cannot come in hither. In other words, they're saying, we're so confident in our fortress. We're so confident that you can't do any better than than others, your predecessors or anybody else has done in taking this fortress away from us, taking away our stronghold, that even the blind and the lame can hold it. So they're taunting them. So David's facing two things. He's facing what looks militarily to be an impossible situation. Nobody's ever conquered it before. And now he's facing the taunts of his enemies, which say even our most feeble people can keep this place because of the, the way that this built, and the way this is constructed. We're not worried about you. We don't care if you've got 12 tribes of Israel behind you. It doesn't make one bit of difference to us. So it says, verse 7, just very calmly, Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion in the same as in the city of David. Verse 8 tells us how he did it. David said on that day, he's talking to his own men. He says, whosoever getteth up to the gutter, that means the water trough. There had to be a water source up on the hill, going up the hill. And so they had a, they had a means whereby they could bring water from the lower parts of the city into the upper part of the city. And so he came up with the idea. I'm sure God gave it to him. But he came up with the idea that the way to attack the city is to go through the, the, the water channel, the water tunnel that they've created as their source, their water source. So he said, whosoever gets up to the gutter, the water source, water turn, tunnel, and smites the Jebusites and the lame and the blind. Now, he's speaking facetiously. Let's get rid of their lame and blind that they say can, can keep the city from us. So whosoever goes up through the water trough. And smites the lame and the blind that are hated of David's soul. He shall be chief and captain. Wherefore they said, the blind and the lame shall not come into the house. So this is King James English way of saying that David is using their own taunts against them. He says, okay, we'll see what what good their blind and their lame do. We'll go up through the water tunnel and we'll take the city and that's, uh, take the, the Mount Zion. And that's exactly what they did. The difficulty didn't deter David nor the taunts of his enemies. Folks, I want you to understand, the Bible talks about in in Luke chapter 11, verse 21 and 22, it says, when a strong man armed keeps his palace, his goods are in peace. But when a stronger than he shall come upon him and overcome him, he takes from him all of his armor wherein he trusted and divides his spoils. Now, Jesus is talking, when Jesus says this, Jesus is talking about the work that he's going to do in taking the stronghold of the devil. Now, what was the stronghold of the devil? The keys of hell and death. You remember after Jesus appears to John on the Isle of Patmos, he said, I am he that liveth and was dead, but I am alive forevermore. And he said, and I have the keys of hell and death. What did Jesus mean when he appeared to his disciples in Matthew 28, verse 18, and says, all power is given unto me in heaven and earth. What power did he not have yet or before that point in time? What power did he not have prior to the resurrection? Well, he had power over sickness and disease. He had power to cast out devils. You can't say they didn't have authority over the devil. He had power to forgive sins. We saw him do it on many occasions. What power did he not have? He didn't have the keys of hell and death. He did not have the right, legal or otherwise. He did not have the right to command spiritual death to let go of the people of God until he died, until he shed his blood to pay the price. And that snatched the keys of hell and death away from the enemy. Now think about the stronghold that the enemy had. 
We just referred to uh, Romans chapter 5 and verse 17. Verse 12 says, Romans chapter 5 verse 12 says, Wherefore, by one man's offense, sin entered the world and death by sin. In other words, man was shut up into spiritual death. There was no hope for him. And that was the enemy's stronghold. And the, and the devil knew that he had something that nobody else could take away. I don't know that the devil was smart enough to figure out that a human sacrifice, the son of God's sacrifice, would pay the price. Because the Bible says itself that if the devil had known what Jesus was up to, if the devil had known what Jesus was going to do, he never would have taken him to the cross. Think about it. If the devil knew that a sacrifice, a blood sacrifice by the son of God was the only thing that could uh, snatch the keys of hell and death away from him, all you got to do is keep Jesus alive. All you got to do is not stir up trouble. What's Jesus going to do? Kill himself? That wouldn't work. It wouldn't be on behalf of the people of Israel. It wouldn't be on behalf of mankind or the nation of Israel. He didn't know what was going on. In the same way, David was the one that had wisdom about how to take the city that nobody else had. So Jesus was the only one that knew what he was really here on the earth for. He knew he was here to die. So when David takes the city of Zion, this is a perfect picture of the devil's attitude toward enforcing death, spiritual death. Now, the devil still operates the same way today as he did back then. He operates the same way against you as he does Jesus. So what does he do? He tells you that the, big, that the, the, the circumstance facing you, the enforcement of death in your life is too big for you to conquer. And then he taunts you. He tries to make you think that you're too weak to get it done. But there is a way up. There's a way up into the stronghold. There's a way up into the city. There's a way up into the blessings of God. And that way is always Jesus. Can you see the types here? That's instructive also that the first thing that David did was take, the Mount, was take Mount Zion. That's the first thing he did. Now, why did he do that? Well, as I said, Mount Zion has two, uh, two hills, two peaks to the mountain. The one peak, he built his house. In other words, he took what was the enemy's stronghold and he made a habitation for the people of God. Can you see the type in that? The second thing he did was he took the place where the temple would be built. Let me read another couple of verses and then I'll make some more comments. Verse 9, it says, So David dwelt in the fort, meaning on Mount Zion, and called it the city of David. And David built round about from Milo and inward. Now, the best that we know, according to, to uh, other historical documents and things like this, this must be some kind of town square that they had up on, the, on Mount Zion. And so David uses this location to build outward and build things around this location, this, thing, this place called Milo or Milo, however you say it. He used this as, as the center court for what would be known as the city of David from that point forward. So he says, and he built out roundabout from uh, Milo and inward. And David went on and grew great, and the Lord of hosts was with him. Verse 11, and Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David, and cedar trees and carpenters and masons, and they built David a house. And David perceived that the Lord had established him king over Israel, and that he exalted his kingdom for the people Israel's sake. Now I want you to look for a moment at Hiram. Hiram represents the Gentiles. Who built 
David's house, which represents the church. By and large, the Gentiles. Was it just for the Gentiles? No, it's for Israel too. But you know as well as I do that Israel rejected Jesus. And so Jesus went to the Gentiles, even in his earthly ministry. The last, most of the last year of his earthly ministry, except for the times that he went to Jerusalem to face the Pharisees and, and uh, to be crucified, most of his last year of ministry was to the Gentiles. Because it was while during that time that the, the Jews, the religious leaders, Pharisees and such, were persecuting Jesus. Jesus didn't stay where he was being persecuted. He went to the Gentiles and did miracles and signs and wonders. And the, and the Gentiles came to him and believed in his name. The same thing was true following the resurrection. Jesus' sacrifice was not just for the Jews. He went first to the Jews, and the preaching of the gospel was first to the Jews, but very soon went to the Gentiles thereafter. What's the most of the church today? It's a Gentile church. Here's a type of the building of the house of the man of God, David, who's a type of Jesus. The house being built is being built by the Gentiles. Now, Jesus is the one building it, but just as we looked at before the work that he does he does through mankind here on the earth and most of that's the gentile church so david recognized that the work that was being done was being done of god now let me let me recap some things about jerusalem and zion We're, we first see zion in jerusalem under the control of melchizedek the priest of the most high god but then very quickly it stops being in subjection to the servant of god but falls into the hands of a people cursed by god and for centuries refused to be subject to the people of god it's a type of spiritual death. It's captured and then subdued by David, made his residence and became the home of God's temple. What that means is very simply this. The same thing is true spiritually. as what Zion is a type of. The stronghold of the enemy became the habitation of God and the center of his government on the earth. Now turn with me over to uh, Psalm 110. Psalm 110 is uh, helpful to us in recognizing the work of Jesus today and the work of the church. It's only seven verses, but really the first three are the one that were pertinent to our discussion tonight. This is the Psalm of David. We don't know exactly when he wrote this. Not all of the, the Psalms of David do we know when they took place or when they were written or the circumstances behind them. Some we do, some we don't. This one we don't. But here's what David is inspired by the Holy Ghost to say. The Lord said unto my Lord, sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of thy strength out of Zion. Rule thou in the midst of thine enemies. Now, what I want you to see is God's plan for Jesus was to be seated at the right hand of God for a, for a duration. But again, that seating does not mean it's an inactive, an active position. It means that it, uh, the the preparation was finished, so the order was established. What is the established order? That Jesus is the head of the church. Not that Jesus is lazy for another hundred years. Jesus is the head of the church. What preparation was made? He had to finish the work of redemption. That's why he's seated, because it's a finished work. But that finished work of redemption is the foundation for the established order. And the established order is that Jesus does whatever is demanded or required in his name. You know, it's an amazing thing. Do you know what spiritual growth is? Spiritual growth is the opening of the eyes of your understanding. 
you don't get bigger spiritually. In, in this sense, you don't even get stronger spiritually. You don't get more righteous than when you were born again. You don't even develop spiritual characteristics in greater measure or greater strength. The strength that we gain and grow in spiritually is that our understanding becomes enlightened to what we already have. See, you don't read enough of the word to where all of a sudden you get something more than you had before you read. You had the same thing after you find out and after you see it uh, spiritually. The eyes of your spirit are opened. That's what you had before. Spiritual strength is an opening of your spiritual eyes. And that comes through reading the word. It comes through meditation. It comes through prayer. It comes through experience. The whole thing, the, literally the whole thing comes down to us realizing what we have and who we are in Christ. And the, the, the tragedy, you remember Paul prayed for the church that the eyes of our spirit would be enlightened. Paul prayed that we would know what was the hope of his calling. Why couldn't he just tell us? I mean, certainly Paul saw some things that he knew that we wouldn't or hadn't. Why didn't he just tell us? Why is he praying for us to see it ourselves? Because it's only when you see it yourself that you grow. Paul told us, all things have been given to us in Christ Jesus. Well, what, is, what more is there to know than that? Big difference in hearing that as truth and having your eyes open to see it. The Bible says that we are healed by the stripes of Jesus. Big difference in hearing that with your natural ears and understanding with your, with, for, because your spiritual eyes are open to it. You know as well as I do that there have been times where you've been reading the word or thinking about a scripture that you've known for a long, long time and all of a sudden you'll see something you never saw before and bang, it becomes alive. It's like it explodes on the inside. Well, why didn't you see it before? It's not like it's new information. It's not new information that puts you over. It's seeing what you already knew spiritually. Not with these eyes, these eyes. Isn't that true? The real tragedy, I think, in heaven is when we get there and we'll realize, oh, my goodness. Look at what we could have done. Well, why are we going to say that, Pastor Mike? Why don't we do it now? Because we don't see what we've got. And you won't see what you've got until you pay the price to see it. Now, from a fleshly standpoint, I wish that wasn't the case. I wish seeing things spiritually was easy. But Jesus never made it easy like that. Jesus spoke in parables so that those that were willing to search and willing to meditate and willing to dig for the things of God would see it. And the people that were just casually interested wouldn't. God doesn't share spiritual things and spiritual truths with people that are casually interested. He opens people's eyes that are diligent. He opens people's eyes that commit themselves to the word. Heard somebody say one time, what would you do if you found out that Jesus was only as committed to you as you are to him? That'd make a lot of people be in trouble. But see, we want it both ways. We want God to be completely committed to us and give us everything that we want and need and, and have a desire for. And we'll, you know, pray every now and then. We'll serve him when we can, when it's convenient. That's not the way it works. You want 100% of what God has for you, you're going to have to give yourself 100% to him. And that's what spiritual growth is about. It's about the opening of your eyes. 
In that sense, we don't grow spiritually. We don't get one thing more than Jesus put on the inside of us when we were born again. We just become aware of what we have and how to use it. We become aware of the exceeding greatness of the power of what we already have. Amen. Back to Psalm 110. The Lord shall send the rod of thy strength out of Zion. That's a type of the church. Rule thou in the midst of thine enemies. How is Jesus ruling today? Only to the degree that the church is ruling. Because Jesus set it up to where what you said or what you did is what he backs you up on. Well, what if we're not doing anything? You don't have anything to do. Now, what's his will? His will is for you to do the same works as he did. But who controls whether or not that happens? You or him? We do. Jesus said, whatever you call for a require in my name, that's what I'll do. Well, what if we don't make any requirement of his name? He didn't have anything to back up. That's why he said, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. If you don't bind it first on earth, nothing's going to be bound or prohibited in heaven. In other words, he didn't have anything to do on his end. Whatever you lose on earth, whatever you allow on the earth, that's what he'll allow in heaven. In other words, heaven's power backs up the initiation of earth's authority. That's how he rules out of Zion. You're Zion. Jerusalem is physical Zion because it's the city of God, but you're the habitation of God. Oh, if our eyes would just open to this. I think when we get to heaven, our eyes will certainly be open. We won't have any flesh to to hinder us. And when Jesus then says, why didn't you do the works that I did? We're going to look at each other and say, yeah, why didn't we? Because it'll seem so clear then. It'll be so easy and it'll be like, well, all the things I could have done. All the ways I could have helped people. Why didn't I do it? Well, the answer is simple. Because we don't see it. Because we don't pierce through the veil of the flesh. To see it and do it. Verse 3. Thy people shall be willing in the day of thy power. They certainly weren't willing before Jesus was raised from the dead. Very few were willing. Think of all the multitudes. The thousands of people that Jesus ministered to and healed. And, and, um, and, and operated with and connected with during his earthly ministry. After he's raised from the dead there's 120 seriously the bible even said and this has always intrigued me the bible even says that there were multitudes of people that saw him after he was raised from the dead king james makes it seem like there was 500 people that saw but literally that means there was 500 people in one setting that saw him raised from the dead or after he was raised from the dead saw that he was alive and there's only 120 in the upper room where in the world is everybody else well the answer is easy to figure out They're going about their lives, their daily activities. They're distracted just like we get distracted. Thy people shall be willing in the day of thy power. In the beauty of holiness from the womb of the morning, thou hast the dew of thy youth. What I wanted you to see is, specifically verse 2, rule thou in the midst of thine enemies. Rule thou. God is ruling. Jesus is ruling now in the midst of his enemies 
How? Only through the church. Only through the church. What was David's purpose for becoming king? To rule. What was your purpose in becoming a Christian? To rule. You know what Zion means? The name Zion means sunny. It means lightened. It means to shine upon, such as to bask in the rays of the warm sun. That's what God calls his hill. That's what God calls his habitation. Zion of Old Testament. The church, which is his family. We need to realize that some of these Old Testament types have been fulfilled. You have the light of God's presence in you and on you. You ever walked out? Maybe from a restaurant or somewhere where you've been kind of chilly. You walk out into the warm sun. You know how good that feels? It's just like, oh, wow, this is great. We get that a lot out here in California. I came out of a restaurant just the other day, turned the corner out of the shade into the sun. It was like, oh, wow, this is great. Well, that's how your spiritual life is. You walk in the sun, the sun of God's light. First thing David did was take Zion. First thing is a type of Jesus David did was retake the habitation of God. That place that was originally, the only place that we know of, that was originally in the hands of God's priests, most high, the, the priest of the most high God. That was David's first action. Just as Jesus' first action is to retake his people. Jesus was made our redeemer. He was made king of kings and lord of lords for a reason. And that was so he could rule and reign through you. And David's a picture of that. One of the verses that we looked at just a minute ago is David realized that it was the Lord that did the work of of making him king. It was the Lord that did the work of the expanding of the kingdom. He saw it was the the Lord's work. He saw the reason for his success as being the Lord. And he didn't back up from it. He used it and exercised it. Oh, that we would follow that example. That we would follow the example of expanding the kingdom of God. Defeating the enemies of God. You know, the things that the devil tries to, to do and enforce in our lives, we ought to be so mad at the devil. We ought to realize that it's an enemy. We ought to realize sickness is an enemy. We ought to realize sin is an enemy. It's not a part-time buddy. It's an enemy. We ought to recognize temptation for what it is. It's the work of the enemy against us. It's the devil trying to rob us of our rightful place of reigning in Christ. If we took that attitude, I think the eyes of our spirits would be opened a lot more than they are. David retook Zion. Jesus retook you. All for a purpose. To live there, to dwell there to inhabit so that his presence and his power would be known that's the picture that we're supposed to fulfill amen let's pray father thank you so much for your word thank you for the exceeding greatness of your power that works in us father we pray the same prayer that paul prayed that you would give unto us the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of you that the eyes of our understanding, the eyes of our spirit would be enlightened, that we would know what is the hope of your calling 
And what are the riches of the glory of your inheritance in the saints? And what is the exceeding greatness of your power that works in us? Open our eyes, Father, to see that miracle working power is available to every one of us. That the same works that Jesus did, we've been commissioned to do as well. It's, it's not the abnormal thing. It's not the rarity, but it should be the normal activity of the church. Father, cause us to see that the light of your face has shined upon us and that we are Mount Zion here on the earth. We are the habitation of God. We are the temple of the Holy Ghost. Lord, help us to live up to it. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for being with us.